am Neil McCluskey. I'm the director of the Center for Educational Freedom. I repeated it several times, but in case, due to our technical difficulties, anybody out there didn't hear it, please tweet all about what you're watching on hashtag EndTheEdCato. So, um, we're going to have a terrific panel discussion for you about ending the U.S. Department of Education, or at least ending maybe even everything the federal government does in education. Who knows? We're going to talk about, though, the federal role in just a few moments. Uh, but first, it's my pleasure to introduce Representative Thomas Massey, a Republican from the 4th District of Kentucky. Representative Massey recently introduced legislation to eliminate the U.S. Department of Education, and sort of with a succinctness I wish characterized all legislation, his bill says the following, the Department of Education shall terminate on December 31st, 2018. And that's the whole bill. Um, think about, I mean, just the savings to taxpayers on ink uh, from that bill, much less what we'd get if we actually were to eliminate much of the federal role in education. Uh, and also, if you've been seeing the news today, this is particularly timely because the Trump administration has just announced it's going to be signing an executive order to research what the Federal Department of Education or the federal government may be doing in education that's illegal. So we're going to save them all sorts of trouble today by just telling them, and again, big savings to taxpayers. Uh, Representative Massey entered Congress in November 2012 after serving as Lewis County Judge Executive. He attended the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he earned a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering and a master's degree in mechanical engineering, hence he could have fixed our problem. During school, he invented a technology that enabled people to interact with computers using their sense of touch and leveraged that technology to found Sensible Technologies, Inc., which raised over $32 million of venture capital, created 70 jobs, and obtained 29 patents. The hardware and software he developed is now used to design automobiles, jewelry, shoes, dental prosthetics, and even reconstructive implants for wounded soldiers. In Congress, Massey has served on three committees, the House Committee on Transportation and Infrastructure, the Committee on Oversight and Government Reform, and the Committee on Science, Space, and Technology. Uh, Thomas lives on a cattle farm in Kentucky with his wife and high school sweetheart, Rhonda, and their four children. Uh, Representative Massey will speak a bit about the department and the federal role in education and then take a few questions uh, from the audience and maybe from Twitter so remember, use that hashtag, end the Ed Cato. I'll moderate that. Um, and with that, Congressman Massey. Well, um, thanks for having me here today. Uh, I just want to, before I get started, come out of the cloakroom and let you know what I really am. I've decided I'm a transpartisan. And uh, I'm assured by Mr. McCluskey that this is a safe space for transpartisans. Uh, it's not bipartisan. Bipartisan means you love both parties. Transpartisan means on some days you can't identify with either. So uh, with that uh, said, let me tell you the story or the genesis for this bill, the one, the one sentence bill. It's eight words and three numerals, I think, in the bill. But um, we were getting a lot of phone calls in my office. Nobody... Uh, attracted as much attention, no nominee that Trump made for his cabinet as Betsy DeVos. She was a lightning rod, and we were, we were receiving dozens of phone calls every day imploring me to stop her nomination. Well, clearly, uh, public education had failed the callers because the Constitution says that 
The Senate has the advice and consent role, not the House. And I serve in the House, not the Senate. So we would typically inform them that that's how uh, Congress works and the government works, that I didn't have a role in the vote. And they would say, well, that's just a cop out. You can do something to stop her. We know you can, so do something. So for four years I've been in Congress, and I remembered one of my campaign promises was to eliminate the Department of Education. Yet I had not yet introduced that bill, and I had worked on a bill, and I realized that this was the time to introduce that bill. By the way, uh, I will admit that you know, there's, there's some timing involved here, and uh, when I meet young students who are majoring in political science that want to get into politics, I encourage them to change their major to theater. Uh, if, they, if they insist on majoring in political science, they say, we'll get a double major in political theater. Uh, so there's a, little, there's a small element of that here, but it is a serious issue, and so I'm glad that it will be debated today. So um, what I did is the day they voted on Betsy DeVos, I carried my bill to the floor of the House of Representatives, and I made sure the timing was precise. I texted Rand Paul's chief of staff to make sure that Rand was on the floor at that very moment voting on Betsy DeVos's confirmation, and that's when I dropped the bill in the hopper. So now when they call up and ask, you know, what, what, are, what am I doing to stop Betsy DeVos, we, my staff informs them that I'm trying to get her fired, that I'm trying to eliminate her position. Um, I have nothing against Betsy DeVos. It's, it's the position that we're after. And if they persist um, and, and ask, well, what's he doing, and we explain the bill, then the next question we ask is, well, do you think Trump, President Trump, or his nominees should be making decisions about what or how your children learn? And that's a, that's a difficult question for them to answer at that point. And so right now I think there's an opportunity because a lot of folks on the left are in some sense ecumenical about what happens to the department now that Betsy DeVos is leading it, now that the, the thought leader or the secretary of that department is not one of them They'd, some of them would almost rather see it gone. And on the Republican side, it's been part of, it was part of the platform, the Republican platform in 1996. An official part of the national platform was to get rid of the Department of Education. In fact, uh, Jimmy Carter implemented the Department of Education in his last year uh, as president, as and some say, I know we're not supposed to question another person's motives in DC, but some say as an election ploy to get more votes and get reelected, and it didn't work, but um, it gave Ronald Reagan something to campaign on, which was to eliminate the Department of Education. And so that was one of his campaign promises, uh, and we're seeing a lot of those go by the wayside here lately, <laughs> but uh, that was one of Reagan's campaign promises that never came to fruition. But I think it's always been a Republican tenant to give states more authority and, and beyond that, local more local control is better. So I think there's an, an opportunity here. By the way, I want to mention I am not an enemy of public schools or public school teachers. In fact, I'm a product K through 12 of a public school, um, and that's what prepared me to go to MIT. Uh, my children go to the same public school I went to. They don't go to private schools. I'm paying the taxes, I might as well uh, take, take advantage of that. So, uh, and I think 
you know, there can be a role for public schools. There is clearly a role for public schools, but it should be managed locally by the school boards and, and the states. Uh, what, another interesting thing about this bill now, and, and maybe why it's drawn attention, even though it's not the first bill to eliminate the Department of Education, why is it drawn so much attention, is because we may have a president for the first time since Reagan who would actually sign this bill if it showed up on his desk. <clears throat> so I think that's another reason people have to take it more seriously. And even Betsy DeVos, when she was asked about uh, eliminating the department, said this is something that she was actually, you know, would love to work herself out of a job. And uh, so I think there's a reason to take it seriously. It would, you know, we're talking about the budget. By the way, we're inside of the 72-hour window now when the government runs out of money. My colleague Mark Meadows says that Congress being surprised about the day the government runs out of money is like a florist being surprised about Valentine's Day. I mean, this is what we do. We fund the government, and we set the date. We shouldn't be surprised every year when the date shows up. But in the context of the budget, um, it's interesting to, to think about this bill. On average, uh, a Department of Education employee here in Washington, D.C. makes $105,000, and there's 4,500 of them. So we're looking at about uh, $400 plus million of overhead here in Washington, D.C. You could apply that towards something else in the budget on Friday, which I haven't had a chance to read. Nobody's read. I don't even think it exists yet which is kind of sobering. I think it's political malpractice not to have a plan at this point. And by the way, the reason we can't talk about the plan, even if we had one, is uh, people might find out what our plan is. It, it, it seems so ridiculous. We should be on the floor right now debating it. Instead, last night, we were renaming post offices. All right, so 10% so of educational funding does go through the Department of Education. and. Uh, my bill, even though it's succinct, uh, leaves a lot of questions unanswered. And maybe that will come up in the, in the debate or conversation later. But, um, and, and by the way, there was some discussion in my office about whether it should be a very simple bill or if it should be very involved and describe what happens to all of these various programs that the federal government supports that fund local education. And uh, by the way, my staff, I have very diverse staff. Uh, I think it's important to have a diverse staff because that way nobody always agrees with you and the staff has good debates. So half of my staff are Ron Paul people and the other half are Rand Paul people. And we argue incessantly about things uh, such as the Department of Education and how, what the bill structure it should take. I, in fact, I had another congressman come to me on the floor. He was a freshman. He had been elected for, and, and sworn in for all of four weeks. And uh, he was interrogating me about why the bill was only one sentence. And I was getting a little bit annoyed, I have to admit. He'd only been there four weeks, and I've been there four years. And he's like, but why would you keep it to one sentence? Shouldn't you describe what's going to happen to Pell Grants? Or shouldn't you describe you know, what's going to happen to teacher training grants? Or shouldn't those things be in the bill? And I explained to him the art of consensus is about getting people to agree on, on at least one thing before you try and get into the details too far. And so that a one-sentence bill was the best way to do this. Um, 
A week later, he came back and asked me to co-sponsor his one-sentence bill to eliminate the department or uh, the EPA. So uh, I think that's the most sincere form of flattery is to is to copy it. So there are now two one-sentence bills um, to eliminate two separate departments in the federal government. But what would happen with the things the federal government does right now that my bill does not prescribe what, uh, for? Um, you could do three things. I put them into three different categories of things that could happen with the, with the programs. The first and least disruptive option is to keep all the federal programs and assign them to departments that already exist. This is how it functioned. A lot of these programs existed before the Department of Education uh, existed. And so, uh, for instance, a lot of people may not realize that Head Start is already in, the in HHS. It's not in the Department of Education. Maybe you already know that school lunches are run by the USDA, not the Department of Education. And there are other examples where you, you might have thought the Department of Education is doing these things, but they're done somewhere else. So you could take, for instance, Pell Grants and student loans and move them to the Treasury Department, where it might be more appropriate. Uh, and you could, you could do those sort of things. Or the teacher training grants, right? We've got uh, training programs. Most of those are in the Department of Labor already. You could put those in the Department of Labor. Okay, so if you do that, all my bill does is basically get rid of Betsy DeVos's job and 4,500 uh, bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. The uh, second thing you could do is to block grant the money for all these programs to the states. I have, uh, uh, let's say, technical schools and uh, even four-year schools that come to my office from Kentucky, and they say, we need more flexibility with Pell Grants. We, uh, particularly the ones that are getting two years degrees and they go year round. They're like, we can't get the grants and the loans to qualify for the summer portion that our students are enrolled in. And we need flexibility to do that. Well, if the state administered those programs, the state could decide what the people in that state need to learn and could offer uh, more flexibility themselves if you did the block grants. Um, the third option, which is my preferred option, I'm a, I'm a pragmatist, but I'm also an ideologue, a proud ideologue. So I will disclose my, my ideology here informs me that the state should handle all of this, the revenue collection and the disbursement, not the federal government. And um, I'll leave that to the other folks to debate why that may or may not be a good idea to them. But that's my preference. And just get the federal government out of it totally, because for that 10%, of the money that the states use on their education, they have to comply with a lot of federal mandates, and I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer here. So with that, I'll, I'll stop, and if there's time for questions, I'll take some questions. Sure. Uh, the time, I don't know how much time you have, but we'll go. Five minutes on the counter here. <laughs> oh, don't, don't listen. I think it's broken just like okay. the rest of that. Um, but, well, if you're up for maybe 10 minutes, does that sound sure. good? Yeah. All That's right. enough to get me in trouble. Okay. I, I do have one question on Twitter already, which means people have been paying close attention to my repeating that hashtag over and over again, so I won't do that. But first, we'll start with somebody who's, if there are any questions in the live audience, you guys did all the hard work to get here, so you should get the first question. And we have a question right up front. Uh, what, just please wait for the microphone, and I do have to remember to ask, please try and stay to a question, uh, particularly in this part, because we have pretty limited time. So. 
you, if you were to eliminate the Department of Education and all 4,500 employees, because I've worked with two school districts, where would those folks go? Would they be transitioned to other federal uh, departments, or would they completely lose their jobs? And well, how would that work? Well, uh, what happens is folks, you know, you get out of one department, and, I've, and uh, they find another job for you in another agency. I'd prefer them to go to the private sector because if they go somewhere else in the government, we're going to be ending up paying that same 400 and some million dollars. Uh, well, that's a, that's a good question, but uh, I told you my preferred, so I don't know if you heard her question, but what would happen to the 4,500 people that currently work at the Department of Education? Would we re-employ them? in other departments so that they could keep administering these programs. Uh, I would hope they go into the private sector. And that may sound cold, but at the end of the day, when you cut government spending, there are government jobs that are going to be cut somewhere. Uh, my preferred outcome for what happens to these programs is, this, is that the state departments of education, all 50 states, everyone has a department that could manage these programs. And so I think there's, a, I think their jobs are redundant now, and I would let the states manage it. Right, I'm going to take the next one from Twitter. Uh, can everyone hear me? Okay. Uh, it says, oops, now see I'm fading out here. One second, more technical difficulties. Uh, would ending the Department of Education improve ability for states to innovate in education? I think so. Uh, yeah, I told you I'm a, a product of the public schools. So if you're mad at me, blame the public schools. But um, when I, I'm 46 years old, so when I first started in public schools, the Department of Education did not exist. And uh, it has progressively got more engaged in actual curriculum and standards, which those things have, have sort of been feathered in, like letting out on a clutch, so that for most of my education, the Department of Education was not uh, very involved. And the best education I received was, I would say, in the seventh and eighth grade from teachers who didn't have mandates on what they had to teach. In fact, we were talking about STEM education. My, I had the same teacher for science for the seventh grade and the eighth grade. And he organized a science fair at our school, just out of his own uh, compunction. He didn't get paid extra to stay over time. He didn't get paid extra to mentor students. Uh, I built a robot arm for that science fair. And that's what uh, sort of fueled my passion and, and gave me an outlet for uh, you know, my engineering uh, interests. It was that science fair. That teacher today, he, he left a little bit earlier than he had to because of the mandates and they came in and told him what he had to teach and how he had to teach it. And he made up his own end of the year tests. He used to give us a big final at the end of the year. It was like this hundred question, multiple choice thing that everybody dreaded. It was on those mimeographs. Remember the blue copies? Because we didn't have a copier machine there. It was those old mimeographs and it was that you know, 100 question test. He made it up based on what he thought we needed to know. And I think to this day, it was, it was actually sort of high school, if not college level, what he was teaching us because nobody told him he had to teach something else. So I think it would allow more of those teachers to do their thing. Um, 
And we and people can the states can learn from other states. Great. All right, we'll go back to the audience, and then I have at least one more Twitter question. So right here on the aisle, I don't think I'm missing anybody. Uh, thank you so much, Congressman, for being here. Uh, John Martin here. So like you, I'm a proponent of state rights and local rights for education standards. But to play devil's advocate, one argument I hear is that that also leads to certain inconsistencies like schools refusing to teach anything but abstinence-only sex education, or you have schools in Texas teaching that slaves are immigrants, or you know, certain, I guess, problematic kind of directions um, in isolated areas. So how do you respond to, if you get rid of any federal source standard and leave it all to local governments, I guess, yeah. So I guess, well, how do you respond that's, to that? that's the argument that we, we might, uh, that uh, people might become victims to their governors and their school boards. And I'm not real sympathetic to that argument. I mean, they elected their governors, their state legislators, their school boards. And uh, if they want to teach something different, I mean, this is the whole individual responsibility argument. You're going to take responsibility for your mistakes, too. Um, And I just don't believe that the people in Washington, D.C., are somehow better informed about what kids in Kentucky need to learn than the parents and the teachers and and the local elected officials in Kentucky. But that's the argument. I end up with people telling me, like when people from Kentucky tell me they don't like my bill, what they're saying is they don't trust the people they've elected and they trust the people in Washington, D.C. more. the longer I spend in Washington, D.C., the more reason I have not to trust the government here. When the first three months you get elected to Congress, right, you walk around and you look at the really tall doors and the tall ceilings and the marble columns and the granite everywhere, and you're just pinching yourself, how did I get elected? And then after three months, that wears off, and you look around at your colleagues and say, how the hell did they get elected? <laughs> uh, and so that's what's scary to me now. And then for those people that say, we can't trust our local school board, the question is, okay, so you trust Betsy DeVos more. You trust Donald Trump more. You trust the Republican majority in the Senate and the House more. And that's when they get the cognitive dissonance. All right, I think we could do two more. So I'll do, I'll do one more from Twitter and one more from the audience and then you are released. Okay, great. <laughs> uh, so we've got, this we've one, got a little bit going on over in yeah, the Yeah, I know. Right there now. may be something else with those other people, but uh, we won't talk about them. Um, so this question is, with no Department of Education, how would you ensure educational civil rights federally when states have an inconsistent record of doing that? So um, first of all, a lot of this, well, really it's not adjudicated at the Department of Education. These the civil rights uh, concerns end up in courts. And so there's a forum for adjudicating uh, these issues if somebody breaks the law, if some school system breaks a law. I'm not saying that you have to get rid of all of these laws. Uh, And there's already, like if you look at the the case work, I mean by definition, the the case studies, these these end up in the courts. so that's, that's one answer. And then the, the other is, I feel like we have more transparency now than we did 
maybe 50 years ago or 40 years ago when, when people, when this was a concern and there were more violations. I'm not going to say there aren't any violations now, um, but I think there's a forum for adjudicating that. All right, so last question. Somebody in the back, sort of the back, back there. Again, sort of near the aisle. Uh, there he is. He's, he's pointing at himself because I'm pointing at him. Here <laughs> comes the, it's coming from behind you, sir. Congressman Manassi, I just wanted to ask you, when I look at elections with the exception of the Brexit and, and Trump vote, you know, it's nice to look at Europe's online betting so what are the odds? Are we like at 10% or 5% or better that this could actually happen? The bill passing? Yeah. Um, I think by introducing it when I did, I improved the odds considerably. They were probably zero. <laughs> uh, you know. So, um, you know, I, I like to back into it. When you calculate probability, and by the way, I went through this with uh, Koskinen in a hearing once and told him how to calculate the probability that Lois Lerner's hard drive failed in the three-day window after she received the notice not to delete anything. Uh, it was like one in 10,000. But when you, when you calculate probability, you multiply uh, probabilities times each other. And... You know, the probability that Barack Obama would sign a bill like this was zero. So you'd multiply everything, all the other probabilities by zero, and you would get zero. I'd like to focus on um, the fact that some of those zero probabilities that were in the multipl multiplication are now uh, finite. So Donald Trump, it's probably a uh, 50% chance he would sign this bill. Um, the probability that uh, you could get 218 for this on the floor of the House if it came to the floor is probably about 25%, uh, maybe less given the health care thing we just saw on Obamacare where you thought it would be the probability be one and it turned out not to be. Uh, uh, one meaning 100%. So. I don't know. It's still, I'm going to be honest, it's pretty, it's slim chance. It's a very slim chance. But it begins a discussion. And what might end up happening is that we cut parts of the Department of Education. If you think about the art of the deal, I'm starting out here. Let's eliminate it, right? And now the discussion that, we're, that I'm having on Facebook, and by the way, I'm the only congressman I know that feeds the trolls on Facebook. Like, I literally go on there and argue with people on Facebook. They tell you not to do this, but I do it. Uh, but the argument we're having is, it starts out with, you're right on this, but we need to keep this. And so maybe uh, we can move the dial. Maybe something will matriculate use an educational term, out of this bill that's not the full bill. And so there's always, uh, there's always a reason to do it. And the fact that we're having this discussion at Cato increases the probability by some finite amount because somebody's watching the stream of this and they're going to be compelled that this might be a good idea and they may pick up the phone and call their congressman and so when I introduced the bill, I had seven co-sponsors, and now I'm up to 10 co-sponsors because three congressmen have received enough phone calls from, it, this is an interactive probability, right? This is not 
something where it's, it's static, um, it's dynamic. People are watching this, this stream and, and you all can change the probability. So it's very low now that this bill, I would say less than 5%, maybe less than 1%, that this bill would become law while I'm in Congress. Uh, but the probability that some, some aspect of it becomes law is probably closer to 50% under this administration. And so if you, if you love the Department of Education, the Federal Department of Education, you should still be worried. Take no comfort in the fact that, the, that this bill has a low probability because there is a probability that some changes are going to be made in this uh, administration. Hopefully they'll be made by Congress and not by a pen or a phone in the executive branch. That's the other thing. People, <laughs> there's the, the cliche that we're, you know, a country of, of laws, not men, but we have migrated to being a country of, of uh, men and the executive branch of power has grown more and more. And that's something that I'm stating with this bill is that we need to rein in the executive branch. So uh, if there are changes, I hope they happen in Congress and not necessarily by the administration. And maybe we can get some agreement on that from even the left side. Because I've, I've thought about why is the left so apoplectic about Donald Trump winning the election? It's because we've all devolved into this notion that we were electing a monarch, that the, that the president can do anything he wants once he's elected. And, that, and that's a pretty scary notion if your king doesn't get elected. If the other king that doesn't like you gets elected, that's a scary notion. But the fact that we have 435 members of Congress and somebody in there represents your viewpoint on any given day, whether or not they are from your congressional district, that should give you comfort, but only if you believe the legislative branch still has power. And so uh, I know I've, I've diverged from your question considerably, but I just want you to keep that in mind when you're calculating the probabilities that uh, the probability of something happening as a result of all the attention that this bill has garnered is uh, probably 50%. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Congressman, for taking time out of your very busy schedule today. And so next, it is my pleasure to introduce uh, to bring up our panel, and I will be introducing our moderator, and then she will take over from there. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce the moderator is Lauren Camera. Uh, she's an education reporter at U.S. News and World Report. She covered education policy and politics for nearly a decade and has written for Education Week, The Heckinger Report, Congressional Quarterly, Roll Call, and The Chronicle of Higher Education. She was a 2013 Spencer Education Fellow at Columbia University School of Journalism, where she conducted a reporting project about the impact of the Obama administration's competitive education grant race to the top. Uh, she also seems to write uh, an article about every 10 minutes from what I get either from my Google Alerts or my Twitter feed. I don't know how you do it. You probably wrote an article just while you were listening to the Congressman. And with that, Lauren, it's all yours. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, as Neil mentioned, my name is Lauren Camera. I'm the education reporter at US News and World Report. And um, 
The Congressman gave a great introduction to the discussion that we're going to be having today. The question before us is a very big one. Should the Department of Education exist? Is it time to get rid of it? If not, what role should it play in the future? Um, I have to say, um, Neil, this is probably one of the most timely panels I've ever participated in. In just about an hour, um, President Trump will be signing an executive order directing the Department of Education um, to study the uh, whether it has uh, overstepped its boundaries, whether it has used its authority excessively, and in what way, and what to do about that. And yes, I wrote a story about that this morning. <laughs> um, but as you'll hear, some of today's panelists argue after spending trillions of dollars over the last few decades, uh, we could potentially conclude that the federal government could not significantly improve school performance, and thus it should get out of the education business altogether, while others might argue that the federal government has a responsibility to ensure um, low-income students, students with disabilities, other disadvantaged student populations um, are getting a good education, and therefore the federal government has a robust role to play in education. Uh, to introduce the topic, I guess we will start with an introduction to the panelists. Of course, Neil McCluskey needs no introduction. Um, he is the director of Cato Center for Educational Freedom, and in that role, he has long called for the dissolution of the education department, but walked a very fine line between advocating for conservative policies like school choice vouchers um, and ensuring that the federal government is not the one who is mandating them. Um, on my left is Catherine Brown. Catherine is the Vice President of Education Policy at the Center for American Progress. Um, before that, she was Vice President of Policy at Teach for America and was also once a legislative assistant to then-Senator Hillary Clinton. Um, as you might imagine, Catherine takes a bit of a different stance here, uh, viewing the federal government um, having the responsibility to ensure that states and local school districts are doing right by their most vulnerable students and therefore has a robust role to play when it comes to education. Um, and on her, uh, my furthest left, uh, is Vicki Alger. Vicki is a research fellow at the um, Independent Institute in Out Oakland, California. She arrived this morning from Arizona, where she lives with her family. Uh, she is the author of the book, Failure, The Federal Miseducation of America's Children. So I'm sure you might be able to guess where she falls on the spectrum. Um, she's focused much of her research on school choice uh, and other education reforms that promote a competitive education marketplace. Um, and our goal here is to have just a very robust discussion. And we're going to save some time at the end for all of your questions and the questions from Twitter. Um, so just to get things started, um, let's just you know call a spade a spade. And let's, let's go down the row. And maybe if you could quickly outline your arguments for why or why not, we um, should say goodbye to the Department of Education. And I'm going to take a seat, so it's a little bit long. All right, so I guess I'll go first. Sounds good. First of all, I want to thank all three of you for coming today. Um, and I was going to ask, why are we going to talk about getting rid of the Department of Education now? But we've already kind of gotten a lot of the background of why now is good. And believe me, we are in no way in collusion with the Trump administration saying, announce you're going to do some major study of the federal role in education the same day we're having an event. I think they saw we're having an event, and they're like, ooh. <laughs> 
they're going to drive the news cycle, so we better do something too. Um, so just real quickly, why should we get the Department of Education? Then I'll, I will talk a little bit more about why now. Uh, like Lauren said, this is something we've been talking about for a long time. It's not just because we see a political window of opportunity. And there are really two major reasons that I think are most important. The first one, although unfortunately it tends to not be the most convincing argument uh, these days, is it's unconstitutional. The Constitution only gives the federal government specific enumerated powers, and you, if you look in the Constitution, you don't find the word education anywhere. Education is among those specific enumerated powers. And the General Welfare Clause, the, the Spending Clause, the Commerce Clause, any other clause that somebody may say, ah, but this lets you do it, that's if you read your Federalist Papers. And if you think of why even give enumerated powers, it's because those clauses just say, uh, here, you can do this, to execute those enumerated powers, not you can use these to do anything you want far beyond those enumerated powers. And, and why is it important that we continue to follow the Constitution? Because actually, as the congressman said, if we shred the Constitution, we shred the rule of law, we become subject to the rule of people. And so it could be that whoever happens to have the majority says, well, you don't get legal protections anymore from whatever we want to do at the federal level because we don't pay constant constitution. And if you're not in that majority, well, that's too bad for you. Or you get a political minority or even a faction, as the founders talked about, who can get political power. And then even a small number of people can impose things on us that they're not supposed to have the power to do. And so we don't just talk about the Constitution as sort of a fun exercise. Obeying the Constitution is something we do for a very serious reason, and it protects us as individuals. It also protects states and communities. So first and foremost, we need to follow the Constitution because we need the rule of law. Then the second thing, and, and Lauren mentioned this, uh, and, and people who are familiar with Cato know this, it doesn't seem that the Department of Education and the federal role in education has been particularly productive. You may even say in many cases it's been counterproductive. I won't go all over, over all the data on this because we have a short amount of time. But if you look at those National Assessment of Educational Progress scores, kind of this, this is a federal test, but it's valuable in that nobody gains or loses money, and so it's kind of a fair barometer. People aren't uh, intending to game it. But you can see for 17-year-olds, math and reading scores have been almost completely flat for 40-some years, whereas federal funding has well more than doubled, nearing tripling, over, on a per-pupil basis adjusted for inflation. Same for overall spending per pupil in K through 12 education, adjusting for inflation. And so what that suggests is we're not getting any bang for our buck. Now it's true though, if you go beyond below 17 year olds. So when we talk about totally flat, we're talking about 17 year olds. If you look at fourth graders and eighth graders, there has been some improvement. And there has been some research that suggested maybe federal accountability, standards of accountability with no child left behind maybe had some impact uh, to get some kind of small improvements. At least the small is what you can attribute to the federal government. But even then, you have to think. The standards and accountability movement, if you like this, if you like the idea of assessing schools based on test scores, um, which is a lot of what standards and accountability is, that started in states, North Carolina, Texas. And what happened was a president who came from Texas said, we should do what we've done in Texas for the whole country, which ultimately led to a pretty sizable backlash against standards and testing. Well, would it have been a more sustainable reform 
if it was really working, if instead of having the federal government sort of jam it down everybody's throats and have a big backlash against it, if states sort of naturally moved in that direction and they tailored it to the needs and the political realities of their states, if that sort of reform really does work, it may have been much more sustainable if we left at the state level. Uh, I'll also talk a little bit about higher education. Here I think there's an even more clear cut argument that the federal government has been counterproductive. Student aid is the main thing the federal government provides, and there's a whole lot of evidence that what aid has done is fueled tuition inflation. It's let colleges raise their prices. It's encouraged students to demand lots of stuff from colleges, much of it not of great academic value. And so we say we're helping people, but we're actually often just making the situation worse. And what's most alarming is it's low-income people, the people who the aid is most supposed to help, who get most scared by really high sticker prices, even if those prices reflect that they expect much of it to be paid with student loans or Pell Grants or something like that. Those people that those, the aid's supposed to help are the ones who are most taken aback by this and say, I can't afford that, I can't go to college. And so what you see is that when you break down by quartile of income, students, the lowest income quartile has a an incredibly low rate of bachelor's degree completion, especially when you compare it to the three wealthier quartiles. So the people we're trying to help, it's quite clear, are not actually being helped by this. Then the question is, well, what do we do about it? Um, oh, actually, I'm stepping ahead a little. Then the question actually is, so why are we talking about this now, even though we already went over that? But I do think No Child Left Behind, which we just talked about, then Race to the Top and Waivers from Race to the Top and the Common Core, seems like it's mobilized a lot of people on the right, but increasingly also people you'd say on the left, to say, boy, the federal government has gone too far. And we actually have seen recently um, op-eds in the Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times and, and probably other places, I think the Huffington Post, the people on the left saying, maybe there shouldn't be a cabinet level Department of Education. Maybe there is too much threat that they're gonna do things like forced teacher evaluations and not just force evaluating, but how you do it. Force standards, force curricula, force tests. And we had seen that. We'd seen that growing for a long time. And so there seem to be at least some people on the left say maybe we shouldn't have a cabinet-level department that can be the political force to push this. Um, and I think there may be even more concerns we talked about because there is a movement to have the federal government now push school choice. And I like school choice, but I have huge worries about the federal government doing it. But I think there are also people probably on the left who say, I don't want the federal government suddenly imposing a national school choice program. Um, so these educational and legal reasons that I, uh, the first ones I mentioned, they've been here the whole time. But I think we've kind of seen a political alignment and with fear of the Trump administration in particular on left and right to deal with this. So what should we do? We're going to talk, I'm sure, a lot about more what we should do. Um, I think we could, though, move the Department of Education back into the Department of Health and Education and Welfare, something like that. My friend Patrick Linderhand's back here. We talked about this yesterday. So maybe put it back in an HEW uh, or something like that. I think ultimately most of these programs should go and just real keep quickly what I would keep, an Office of Civil Rights. They'll probably put it in the Justice Department. I think the D.C. Voucher Program, uh, school choice for the military, for Native Americans, all of these would be constitutional and are things we should think about, and maybe even keep impact aid, which is supposed to just sort of make whole districts that are adversely affected by federal installations. And of course, federal courts should 
and I hope will always have a role in addressing state and local discrimination in provision of education. And with that, look forward to your questions. Hear me? Yeah, okay. Um, thank you so much for having me today. I think this is a good opportunity and I think it's important, particularly at this time, for there to be conversations about from people between people who really have fundamental disagreements as we do today. I think this keeps Washington more civil and I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, we do have a really fundamental disagreement about the role of the federal government, not just for the Department of Education, but writ large. Um, I re very strongly believe it exists to protect vulnerable students and communities and that lifting up those individuals and communities is not just good for the, the people, but also good for America itself. Um, when I think about the Department of Education and education, uh, the federal investment in education, I think about my own grandfather, who was a fighter pilot in World War II, and when the war ended, was able to go to college as a result of the GI Bill. He was the first person in his family to go to college, um, and he raised a daughter, my mother, who um, was also the first woman in her family to go to college and went on to get her college degree and then her PhD and ultimately became a dean at a university, and that was entirely because the federal government made it possible for both my grandfather and my mother to attain their dreams. And, and that shaped who I am and allowed my whole family to vault into the middle class. And that is the American dream. And that is um, something we should be very proud of. At this, this, We live in the wealthiest country in the world, um, at, in the wealthiest time in history. And I think education is, by any account, a fundamental right. It's something that um, is absolutely central to the general welfare of our nation, which the Constitution allows the federal government to invest in. Um, and it's really hard to imagine what would happen if you pulled the rug out from under all of these vulnerable students who rely on federal spending and federal regulation. Um, but, you know, so I think Representative Massey's bill, he did a good job explaining it, but just to reiterate, it's one sentence and it would take much more than one sentence. Not, in my view, it's not a serious proposal. It would take much more than one sentence to think about how you would actually dismantle this agency. But just to walk through the three options that he laid out and my concerns with them, and I, I do want to get into a lot of the different points that were raised, but I'm not going to tackle all of those in my opening remarks. Um, so the first idea is just to take the offices and the functions of the Department of Education and move them to other agencies. So job training would go to the Department of Labor, student loans would go to Treasury, um, Title I would go to HHS, et cetera. In my view, this is just a shell game. This wouldn't save the federal government any money or reduce the footprint. It would simply move people. It would cost us in terms of moving trucks and we'd have this large building at 400 Maryland Avenue. Um, so I don't really see the point, but I, I get that it would score political points for the Republicans. Um, the second idea, I think, is just to take the, the major formula programs, I guess Title I or the, the, the programs that the conservatives believe they, they would like to retain, and distribute them as a block grant. So Title I would go out with virtually no accountability, et cetera, from, from HHS. I think this um, would be really problematic because then you're talking about billions of dollars of taxpayer dollars that are totally unaccountable. So if states want to spend that money on tax cuts for the wealthy or swimming pools in rich neighborhoods, which they did before Title I had spending rules in place, there would be no one making sure that money was well spent. Uh, I don't think this is what the taxpayers signed up for and it's not what Congress um, intended when they reauthorized ESSA with large bipartisan majorities in 2014. Um, and then the third, which I think is what was made clear is what, what a lot of 
the people here are actually advocating for is to literally do away with all of the programs from the Department of Education. And you know, I think about Pell Grants and the 7.5 million people who rely on this. These aren't people who could go to college otherwise. If you stopped administering Pell Grants, if you stopped giving out student loans, students from low-income families would not be better off. They would have no access to college. And we've never had a time in our country, in our world, when there's been a greater return on education. It's just, it is the ticket to the middle class. So I have really serious concerns about all of the programs getting eliminated and the impact that it would have on vulnerable students and communities. Thanks. Well, good afternoon. And I would like to thank Neil McCluskey for organizing this event, and Lauren and Catherine for being here. Um, it's, it's really such a thrill to actually be here at the Cato Institute. Um, I've read the Cato Institute reports for years. I got my start in policy at the Goldwater Institute with many friends uh, of Cato involved with that. And it's something that I was sharing with Neil earlier today. This is one of the things I never leave home without. It is all, I have a copy of the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence provided by Cato in my purse at all times. And you'd be surprised how many times I actually have to use it. Um, and we'll be referring to it today. I think we can talk, send maybe a copy to uh, President Trump so we don't have to have that federal study. Spoiler alert, word education doesn't appear once in here. All done, next order of business. But as you can tell, I have, um, not being from the Beltway, being from Arizona, um, I love coming here and visiting. But you know what I don't like? DC and any one of my four stepson's district public school classrooms, or any of their classrooms, or anyone else's classrooms. Because I think the fundamental disagreement is this. And I'm, I share Catherine's concern about people who are disadvantaged, people who are having their civil rights violated on a regular basis. I have testified at this, those Office of Civil Rights hearings. I have no belief that somehow folks in this district, in Washington, D.C., are somehow more just, more infor informed, and have more expertise about other people's children. So I would have a different view about keeping the U.S. Department of Education around for that purpose. And to put my perspective in, in context, here's something that I remembered as I was traveling here from Phoenix. It was from a Democratic member of Congress from Illinois who had been both a lawyer and a teacher. And his vision of the U.S. Department of Education was the following, quote, it would be a pure fountain from which a pure stream can be poured upon all the states. We want a controlling head by which the conflicting systems in all the states can be harmonized, by which there can be uniformity. I take the high ground that children are entitled to the ed an education at the hands of somebody, and it ought not be left to the caprice of individuals and the states insofar as we have any power to regulate it. Does that sound familiar? Well, it's probably not who you think. This, ar this argument was actually made by Representative Samuel Moulton of Illinois one year before the U.S. Department of Education was originally founded back in 1867. This idea that somehow D.C. knows best hasn't really changed today. Even if we're willing to you know, shuffle 
the deck chairs on the Titanic around. I'm not. I think we should just end the Department of Education once and for all, except for OCR goes into the Department of Justice. We keep the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program and veterans. All those education benefits, by the way, I'm a very proud Navy wife. Those are not entitlement programs. Those are earned benefits. I'm not saying we're going to like the results much better. Those belong in Veterans Affairs. But let me be clear. We have two very conflicting dif different visions. We've had federal, was it partnership, a historic, federal historical role in education. All of these euphemisms don't change the fact. Congress, unless we amend the Constitution, the federal government has absolutely no legitimate role in education at any level. If we want to amend the Constitution, I say let's have that debate and give it some legitimacy. Until we are willing to do that, stay out. I'd like to conclude just these introductory remarks by telling us, by sharing some of the great things are going on outside the Beltway. And to reassure you that we need to do something better. Because the fact that we have a US Department of Education that is increasingly invasive and intrusive, not to mention expensive, this is not the result of some vast left-wing conspiracy. Folks who would consider themselves on the right are falling prey to these arguments, and I hope we can address some of those concerns today. But I'd like to just leave you with some hope about what's going on in the states and pr how parents are taking their rightful role in controlling their children's education and upbringing. In the state of Arizona, we spend $8,500 per public school student. In DC, you spend over $27,000. And by the way, that's a conservative estimate. The late Andrew Coulson put that figure well above 37. But okay, you know, one, now we're quibbling once we're talking about $27,000 for a regular education student. Not only does Arizona now have more top 25 public high schools than any other state, including you know, double the amount of California and New York combined, um, we spend the least of any of them. We spend $19,000 less than DC. And our middle school students, what about our middle school students? Our African-American eighth graders now have the highest math scores in the country on the nation's report card. We beat our counterparts in states like Massachusetts. So yes, it is possible to beat the state of Massachusetts on a, a proficiency ranking. Since 2009, Arizona public school students have posted the highest math gains between fourth and eighth grade. And since 2011, our public charter school students have posted the highest reading gains. DC did not build Arizona's full, complete, utter public school parental choice. We don't do assigned districts. Great public charter schools, homeschool. You want to homeschool, you're left alone. Go ahead. We have the country's first tuition tax credit scholarship program, which, by the way, turned 20 years old this, this month with universal access. And we also just expanded our education savings account program to make it to phase in universal access. These are programs that are helping children, freeing parents, and taxpayers aren't harmed because money is actually going to students. I think the states like my home state of Arizona, Florida, other states, Nevada, are all giving us far better example of what works 
for all types of student, not this group, that group, or the other group. All students are doing better when we put the real education experts, their parents, back in charge. about how this has um, been a very long-standing debate, um, going back to when President Carter first introduced the country to the Department of Education in 1979. Um, the cabinet is, you know, it's one of the weakest and the smallest, but it is still significant in size and scope. Um, Congressman Massey mentioned that it employs approximately 4,500 people. It operates with a budget of about $68 billion. Uh, that, that's no small potatoes, for sure. Um, it oversees you know, hundreds of federal programs, including those for low-income students, students with disabilities. It oversees the entire federal student loan program. A lot of people hear proposals like eliminate the Department of Education and think, oh, this is a pipe dream. Like, this, how could this even happen? How could you just eliminate a department, let poof, sort of make it disappear? Um, could you, would you mind walking us through a little bit of how that, what that might actually look like? Congressman Massey did a little bit uh, of your job for you there, um, but maybe you could elaborate. Sure. Well, the first thing I'd say is I don't, I have never put together a plan that works us through the whole thing, and that would probably take a while. The next thing I'll say is people here eliminate the Department of Education and they think, oh, so tomorrow you're just going to get rid of it. Clearly, there would have to be a, a plan in place to transition away from the department. Uh, I think the way you would begin to do that is. You would start by saying, okay, well, there are two things you should do. You should say, well, what are some programs that people aren't dependent on? You know, they're nice to have, but maybe they're not things that are essential. And the federal government does lots of things in education that aren't essential. In fact, I would argue it's almost all non-essential in education because, remember, the people who pay from taxes live in districts and states. So it's not like the federal government... Uh, although we do massive deficit spending, ultimately someone's going to have to pay that. And so those people who are going to have to pay it already live in districts and states. If you let them keep the money, it may be they could easily do these things themselves. But so you would look and see, are there some programs that are small, that it's not going to inflict much damage if we do get rid of them right now? But then I think you also start to say, well, let's move some things that makes more sense to be in other departments to other departments. So at least we get rid of this cabinet level, which has a lot of political influence to be cabinet level. Put it back maybe where some of these things would make more sense if you were to keep them. Uh, again, we talked about the old health, education, and welfare. Interestingly, during the Carter administration, his, some of his own advisors said, don't take education out of this area because health and welfare issues are so intimately connected to how you do in school. Um, and so you, would, you could fairly quickly, I think, move things that you think are worth keeping to other places. But I do think we need to have a debate of these things, even when we think, are, are they worth keeping? Are they really worth keeping? Again, you'd have to phase them out. So I've looked at this more in higher education. Uh, because I think there's very clear evidence that the student aid is counterproductive because of the it fuels inflation. Well, there are things like parent plus loans or other unsubsidized loans that you could fairly quickly phase out because they're not particularly targeted at low-income people, certainly not very well. And I think you could certainly make an argument that upper-income people or higher-income people don't need them, so you could get rid of those pretty quickly. Then you would, I think, move to
to. You could also eliminate lots of the tax credits and tax deductions and things that generally wealthy people take in higher education. That's not really a Department of Education thing, but again, I think we do need to think beyond the department to the whole federal role. And then even things like Pell Grants. Uh, I don't see, we know that, that, well, the estimate is somebody who goes to college makes a million more dollars over their lifetime than somebody who only graduates from high school. There are lots of ways to calculate that. A million dollars is probably the high end, but there is an earnings premium. It, it, I can never understand why we say that somebody should get free money from taxpayers, real people who have real expenses, might need to buy a car or house, they gotta get clothes for their job, but we say, no, you send money to somebody so they can make a whole lot more money and not pay it back. We could turn those into loans. So I think we need to look at every program and say, does it make sense? But even as we're doing that, we could start to move things to other, to other departments where it may make more sense for them to run those. Mm -hmm. And it seems um, like the Trump administration might be hearing your calls a little bit. Um, they don't get any calls from me. I can't <laughs> do that. <laughs> uh, the administration has been particularly focused on minimizing the role in uh, of the education department. Uh, it's proposed in its budget to um, eliminate nine upwards of nine billion dollars in federal education funding, uh, including dozens of programs. Um, it's already rescinded a number of regulations and guidance. It seems as burdensome and uh, outside of the department's jurisdictions. Um, I'd love to hear uh, some of your thoughts on, um, you know, what other tools it might have at its disposal. And also, Catherine, um, you know, what are some of the implications of this from the other side of the coin? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think this is this is a conversation and a debate about whether to eliminate the Department of Education. I certainly and should have conceded in my original uh, remarks that I don't I, I don't think every program or every practice or every policy that the Department of Education undertakes is um, uh, you know ought to be defended. I'm not here to do that, and I do think that. But I think the answer to that and the solution to those challenges to, is to have a conversation about how we might reform those policies and practices as opposed to simply eliminating them. Um, to your point, the, Depart the Trump administration and Betsy DeVos have proposed to eliminate Title II, uh, which provides about 40,000 teacher jobs around the country. My personal view is that this would have a really devastating effect on local economies. Schools are under a great deal of um, budgetary pressure. They don't have additional money at the uh, in their wallets to keep these people on if the federal investment goes away. The after-school program is another initiative that the Trump and DeVos administration have proposed to eliminate. I know as the mother of two young sons, this funding is really important for ensuring that you can keep your job and that your kids have somewhere safe and high quality to go after school. Um, so I think, you know, we, again, we can have a conversation about particular initiatives, but I think the ones that they have targeted in, in particular would be very devastating both economically um, and for working families. Well, I would say first and, and foremost, I find it really, really troubling that, you know, 37 years into the U.S. Department of Education, we don't have a definition of what a federal education program even is, according to the GAO, the Government Accountability Office. In fact, it'll be next month when the feds decide to come up with the rubric for sort of talking about kind of sort of what a federal program is. 
as a taxpayer outside the Beltway, this is appalling to me. So when we're talking about cutting programs, I am all for it because do you know how many teacher training programs are being run by agencies in the federal government? Dozens upon dozens. So from my perspective, as a public school stepmom in a state with huge teacher shortages, I'm paying taxes to the U.S. Department, you know, to support, subsidize the U.S. Department of Education for teacher training. Then I'm getting hit sideways again at the state level because we couldn't really get rid of Common Core. Arizona has the dubious distinction of being the first state to rename Common Core twice. It's now permeated throughout our statutes. By the way, I sat on the committees that reviewed the revisions. Um, we, ha we have Common Core. It's just now permeated in growing statutes. And we need more money at the state level because we have to retrain the teachers who supposedly advised on Common Core, but now that we have the Common Core standards, we have to train them on what the standards are. This is the type of insanity that is driven by top-down policymaking. Do I think that it's going to... I can tell you, it'll be zero effect. We take care of our teachers. We pay merit pay to our teachers. We have a very free licensing and training approach to getting our publics, keeping and attracting public school teachers. This is not going to wreak havoc out there in the states. And what was the other program that was going to be after school programs? We don't need the federal government to fund programs. I'm reminded of the words of the late U.S. Senator Barry Goldwater. There is no such thing as a federal dollar. As Neil said, you're taking money from us, and it comes back with a whole bunch of strings. The best way to do these things is just, right now, program management is just restored to the states simply by eliminating right now the 19 non-program offices in the U.S. Department of Education, how would you like your share of some $14 billion in taxes? And if we simply just change the location of the management, you talk to the states, you talk to any superintendent of public instruction in a public school, you know what they're going to tell you? Off the record, of course, they're not taking billboards or advertising this fact. A vast majority of their staff are hired simply to deal with federal program paperwork, mandates, and costs. So those of us out there in the states are paying twice for very lackluster results. We have the infrastructure in place now. Give us the management of the programs. Let the life cycle of these programs run out. We've already paid for them. What we don't want to pay for is all of this overhead on Maryland Avenue. Go ahead and sell it. We've got a president in office who has some experience in the real estate market. Get the best price and return that money to the taxpayer. Because I tell you what, it should be our decision in the states whether we continue to support these programs with our hard-earned tax dollars rather than to pay these hugely, obscenely expensive DC brokerage fees. Um, so unless you were potentially, you know, sleeping under a rock for the last couple of years, you probably know we have a new federal education law, the Every Student Succeeds Act. Um, a, it's a bipartisan law. Um, it passed with, you know, uh, Republican and Democratic support in both the House and the Senate. 
Um, and a lot of what it does is roll back the role of the federal government and hands a lot of control back over to states and local school districts. And I'd love to hear from our panelists about um, whether that's enough or, you know, is it just a good building block to start with? Um, it was a bipartisan bill, so is perhaps there an appetite um, from the left on some of these issues? Anyone? <laughs> I'll go first if sure. nobody else wants to. No, I'm happy oh, to. <laughs> do you want to? Sure. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's worth stating that the Department of Education is a relatively small footprint. Most education funding comes from states and localities. It's less than 10% in the vast majority of districts. Um, so we already have, we have always had an education system that is driven by states and localities. ESSA did um, shift even more of the decision making around what goals you're setting for your schools to states. Um, and I think that's a welcome um, uh, step forward, but I also think the fact that ESSA was passed with, with strong bipartisan majorities suggests that there is broad consensus in Washington, this conversation aside, that the federal department, there is a role for federal department of education, there is a role for, um, uh, you know, spending on education and particularly for supporting vulnerable kids. Title I, um, the Trump administration actually roughly level funded in this uh, budget that just came out and that's obviously supporting the most low income students. So unfortunately what we have when education is completely left to states and localities is it's the poorest students that don't get the resources they need and that's why um, ESSA exists to ensure that those communities that don't have the tax dollars, the local property taxes, which still fuel a lot of our education funding formulas, um, uh, don't meet that. That doesn't instantly translate into students living in those communities getting a lower quality education. Do you know, I would say that there's absolutely no evidence <laughs> that students are doing better because, uh, on the one hand, the federal government in the totality is about 10% of education funding. U.S. Department of Education funding is about a nickel for every dollar we send to D.C. Wouldn't it be better if states are somehow lacking resources? Why don't we stop, build a wall around our own states, keep the money in our own states, and we can solve our own problems? There seems to be this idea that somehow, if we folks in the states, horrors, are left to our own devices, we're going to degenerate into bastions of discrimination and greed. Well, let me tell you, I'm not seeing for all the amounts of money we're spending, the sages in DC have not helped low-income children. Let's look at your own backyard. The biggest cautionary tale in American education is the DC public school system, the most expensive, unsafe, and dysfunctional system in the United States. Arguably, it would be a contender for the world. Barely one out of 10 children comes out of this system functionally literate. The shining ray of hope in this district are the choices that parents now have. The DC Opportunity Scholarship is something that I think there is a legitimate congressional role, legit, legitimate constitutional role. Do you want to know how the disadvantaged have been helped in my state? Look no farther to an Indian reservation. We've had the Bureau of Indian Affairs for years. How have the feds helped them? How have the feds helped English learners, low-income kids, in not just my state, but any state? 
You know what programs are helping them? The very programs that too many people want to kill. Tax credit scholarships, homeschooling, education savings accounts, opening up online learning. These are programs that are having demonstrable effect. But as in the early debates back in the late 1800s, we're talking about, well, we need an expert. The model we have for the Department of Education is based on Prussia. And the biggest trick to getting a cabinet-level department back then was that pesky guarantee of a Republican form of government. How are we going to get around it? We'll help the poor children. It'll be an equity issue. Poor children are not doing better today because of a US Department of Education than they were doing before it. So that argument doesn't hold water with me. And I know it may tickle, and I'm barring a phrase from some of the earlier proponents, um, 19th century proponents, it may tickle some people's sense of self-importance to, self to have a US Department of Education. It has not accomplished any of its goals. It's time to end it once and for all. I'm going to get to answering the ESSA question in a second, um, but I have to <laughs> run through my nice own list. point. Yeah, yes. I've got, and they have stars <laughs> next to them, so every point I make is important. Um, I just want to say, first of all, for the money, it's true that the federal government spends, it may not even be 10%, it can vary from year to year, but 8 or 9%, but the reason that that money can sort of coerce so much change is because people don't see a percentage. If you open your newspaper and you hear about your state may not take a federal grant, they're like, they may turn down this grant that is 0.001% of your funding. No, what that typically, that ar the article says, is somebody may turn down a billion-dollar grant or a $500 million grant. When you see that money, people in states say, well, we can't turn down that money. We need that money. Um, and so it can be a small percentage, but it can be very powerful. And the way the federal government typically gets, uh, the way they get states and districts to do what they want in education is they dangle money. But, of course, that money comes from taxpayers. And so they take that money to begin with, and, and like Vicki said, then they attack all sorts of rules and regulations. And even though it's small, a small percentage, it's very hard if you're a state legislator to say, I'm going to turn down that money that looks really big. Um, it's also important to note that, yes, the federal government spends money on lots of things right now, uh, and there are things that actually sound good, right? We want to have more teachers. We want more education. This is a perpetual problem. If you say, get rid of the Department of Education, people are like, so you don't like education? And that's not it. We have to remember that, again, that money comes from somebody. And just because the federal government's the one spending on education now doesn't mean states wouldn't spend the same money or more of it because they didn't lose it to as much bureaucracy on the same things. But it could also be that people who live in states and districts have other priorities for their money. Yes, they like education, but maybe right now it's more important to put food on the table or buy that new car or invest in a company. So just because something is being done by a federal government that looks good now doesn't mean there couldn't be much better uses for that money or the same uses if someone else were controlling it. It's also, I think, important that, yes, the federal role was originally supposed to be sort of compensatory funding. If you have low-income districts, they would supply some uh, funding. But it's also important to note that almost every state, for in many cases for decades, have seen state courts say, State, you must equalize funding, or you must have more equitable funding. So it's very clear that states are heavily involved in this. It's also clear that there's hardly any agreed-upon definition of equitable funding. 
But just because people in states can't agree on it doesn't mean the federal government, miraculously, we know what truly equitable funding is. Finally, for ESSA, I actually do think it helps. Um, but there is a lot of debate about that. So ESSA, to me, took us from the brink of where the federal government was for the first time going to dictate what kids learned. They didn't create Common Core, but they said, look, if you want race to the top money, you have to have standards common to a majority of states and tests that are aligned with them. And oh, by the way, the only thing that fits that definition is Common Core. So we were, we were this close to having the federal government actually beginning to dictate what all children would learn. And ESSA, certainly the spirit of it and the rhetoric behind it was, let's move away from this. Let's move away from this national school board, which I think people on the left and the right were, were many of them saying we've gone too far. The question is, what will happen to it in practice? And there is some language in there, including that the U.S. Secretary of Education still has to approve state applications for money and state plans. Now, it sounds like maybe the Trump administration will be very lenient in that. Like, we're not going to hold you to, to anything in particular. We're not going to try and, you know, coerce you to use any particular standards. But even then, that still leaves it to the decision of a Secretary of Education not either to the rule of law or to states. And so I think it certainly was supposed to be a move in the right direction, and I think it was. It gets rid of adequate yearly progress and things like that. But it's still within it has some very dangerous stuff. Okay, I have one more question, and then I'd like, um, you know, as I'm asking this, for you all to be thinking of some questions as we open it up. Um, we mentioned that the uh, president in now uh, just about 45 minutes will be signing this executive order to direct the Department of Education to take a look at areas where it's overstepped its authority, um, which perhaps could be seen a little bit as ironic, um, seeing as there are there might be some signs that the Trump administration itself is, is starting to use its bully pulpit. You always hear um, of... Republicans, conservatives, libertarians, whichever philosophical hat you choose, um, touting uh, the responsibility we have to roll back the federal role. But it seems, you know, the Trump administration might be falling into some of the same um, things its predecessor had done in terms of prodding states, for example, to adopt policy, uh, education policies of its liking. I think in the budget we saw, for example, an increase of a billion dollars in Title I for poor kids that uh, was tied specifically to uh, states who would allow those poor children to use it for the school of their choice, for example. Um, there's been some signaling that the Secretary of Education may use um, state accountability plans to promote school choice or to prod states to expand their school choice offerings. And I'd love to hear from the panelists um, maybe some of the advice you would have for the Trump administration as, as they set off on some of these things. Um, and then we'll open it up for questions. Can I, can I just go for I'll be sure. really short on this. Don't do it. <laughs> Just because you have something that I may like, if the federal government says, well, okay, we're going to do school choice, uh, I like it. I think there'd be lots of rules and regulations that go with it. But you don't have any credibility to say, don't do these things because they're unconstitutional and I don't like them. 
but then say, but let's do these things that are unconstitutional, but it's okay because you, you like them. So there are big dangers, I think huge dangers, that that school choice would have lots of regulations. But also, if it's unconstitutional to be involved in education, that includes school choice. I just want to quickly respond to the question about states, because I do think it's worth noting, if, if you look at, for example, Texas, um, just last year the story broke that Texas, because of spending pressures at the state level, had imposed an arbitrary cap on the percentage of kids with special needs that were going to get identified for services. And this actually uh, was put in place in 2004. So for more than a decade, the state was way under identifying kids with special needs because they knew they couldn't afford to give them the services that they need. Um, the state got involved. The US Department of Education got involved. And actually, just last week, the state Senate said, OK, we're no longer going to impose this cap. But in the meantime, you have kids who literally went through their entire K-12 education, who maybe had dyslexia or needed some accommodations, who never got them, because Texas was only serving 8.5%, even though nationwide we're serving 13% of kids with special needs. So I think there's a, a very clear and long history that, unfortunately, we did not leave behind in the 60s or 70s. This is very recent history where kids of color, kids from poor communities, are not getting the services and the resources that they need to succeed. So um, I, I just have really serious concerns about the, the, the idea that, that we can assume that states are always going to be good actors when it comes for, to kids from disadvantaged communities. In terms of advice I would have uh, for the Trump administration, for different reasons, I also think they should not get involved in school choice you know, whatsoever. I think um, imposing their vision, I do think it's somewhat ironic that Trump you know, and DeVos have long talked about the federal role and how problematic it was and how much President Obama overstepped. And here they're going to come in and impose a school choice, a nationwide voucher program, even though there's really no appetite for that if you look at the polling around the country. So I certainly hope that they um, seed needs, seed uh, needs, <laughs> take Neil's advice. I think they're more likely to listen to him than me. <laughs> no, I would have to agree as well. And you know, I think Catherine and Neil have done a great job articulating why, but but I'd like to give you an, hist an historical perspective as well as as to why. Um, remember back, yes, it was going to be, by 1990, we were going to have 100% literacy. And then the government promised that by, oh yes, by the year 2000, we were going to lead lead the world in oh yeah, science and math, and we are going to increase you know, high school graduation rates. Then 2014, we're going to have 100% literacy. We never came close to any of these promises. We have to be very, very careful, because the chaos, cost, and upheaval we are inflicting, and self-inflicting, we're allowing ourselves to be bribed with our own money. So we take something, and then every four or eight years, we're ripping it out and putting in the next new silver bullet. We have been doing this so much. It's so disruptive for teachers, students, schools. My concern over parental choice and doing it through federal government fiat executive order is this. Okay, let's say it happens. At most, we'll get it for four or eight years. What happens when these, those families come to depend on it and we don't have someone in office who favors this? The sure and stable path is always to put parents in charge. Now, I'd, I'd love it if you know parents in Texas had the freedom parents in Arizona did 
to take their special needs child to any school, anywhere, anytime, and have an alternate funding source so that their children weren't denied a free and appropriate education. I can't do that. That's not how our system works. If the good people of Texas or anywhere else, or California, why, why look as far as Texas? California, who don't have educational options they want, move. Either stay in your state and fight for them or move. So I would say that um, I would not support, you know, you know, federally mandated choice. That, that just... That just sounds odd to me uh, for first constitutional reasons, and then there are also some very serious practical ones. So we end all agreeing. I bet you thought that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> um, do we have any questions? All right, we'll start with the man back here. Do we have a microphone? Yeah, here it comes. Oh, okay. And if I could just uh, remind everyone to um, state your name and affiliation and please ask a question. We are running a little short on time. Thank you. Robert Cordella, Technology Business Development. It seems that in the beginning, uh, when the Constitution was put in place, everybody was concerned about the tyranny of the majority. But this argument seems to be the tyranny of the minority, that by using minority disadvantaged people, you're trying to leverage control of an enormous system. Could you comment on that? Would anyone like to take that one? Well, I'll, I'll just say that, I mean, we, we tend to not use the term tyranny uh, for nothing else. That, um, that implies some sort of uh, evil motive, usually. I, I really don't think anybody who supports a robust federal role wants that. But absolutely, we should be very concerned about a majority or a minority using the federal government, although I would say state and local governments too, to impose educational ideas on other people. This is a problem fundamental to any sort of public government schooling of you say, well, it'll be democratically controlled, and often that means so the majority will decide how you teach science or how you teach history, and we should be concerned about it anywhere because, of course, scientific questions, historical questions are all heavily debated. They involve lots of differing norms, and we're supposed to have a diverse, a pluralist society, and you can't have an education system that truly supports pluralism that supports diversity if we say, but all kids will have to be taught whatever the majority or most powerful minority selects. But that goes certainly beyond the U.S. Department of Education. And did you have a question? There's a mic microphone down here. Oh, right yep, right in the front. I've worked in two school districts in D.C. and Seattle. I live in Alexandria, Virginia, where there's no accountability how the money is spent that goes to the Alexandria public schools. But my question is, if the Department of Education is, the, is not part of the Constitution and should the federal, and is, is, it is not part of our Constitution, why are we even having a discussion about eliminating the Department of Education? I agree a lot with what you, all of you say, but why are we having this discussion? Because it exists, and <laughs> I, I wish, I wish it didn't. I wish back in 19, you know, the, the, the debates in Congress, the debates in Congress occurred throughout must it, most of the 70s. It started in the 60s. Um, there was a real resurgence to have this. 
um, I, I wish those who claimed in Congress to support the Constitution on both sides of the aisle voted in a principled way. That didn't happen. So I wish when Ronald Reagan was elected, his rhetoric matched his actions. I wish he had surrounded himself with a majority of advisors who actually held his feet to the fire and would have urged him to carry on. Instead, President Reagan decided not to abolish the U.S. Department of Education to make, his, to make the lives of certain congressmen easier. That's the reality, and that's not a popular historical truth, particularly in certain, circle, certain circles. So Reagan failed to act. We had Republican majorities in Congress since then. This typically um, tends to be a right-of-center policy proposal. Republicans haven't voted for it. So, I mean, we have to fight for it today because, all right, we've had it. You've had a good run, 30 active, 30 plus active years. You haven't achieved one of your promises. You're not in the Constitution. And look at the fight we're going to have just to get rid of it and restore education back where it belongs. So that's why we're fighting. It shouldn't exist, but it does. Um, Sorry, did you have a... Yeah, really quick. Yep. Uh, so there's a long history of Supreme Court precedent and congressional action that supports the Department of Education and federal investment in this area. The spending clause allows Congress to spend on things that promote the general welfare of our nation. I think it's undeniable that education is important for the general welfare of our nation, and it's not just about a particular state. Kids today that live in Kentucky are competing against kids in Massachusetts and they're competing against kids in Singapore. We just have a globalized society and in order to succeed, I don't even think anyone would deny that you have to be well educated. It's just essential. Um, and the other thing that uh, the Constitution grants is the ability to regulate across state lines when it exerts and do economic impact. Again, um, there's so much evidence that our education system has a really important economic impact on local communities. A uh, recent Brookings analysis found that in pure spending alone, people with college degrees spend almost $300,000 more in their local communities. I mean, I could go on and on. Getting to a college degree, if we get to a 90% um, high school graduation rate, we're looking at $11.5 billion increase in the GDP. So over and over again, there's such a deep connection between education and economic growth. Can I just, real quick, I got to say, first of all, that the general welfare clause does not confer any powers. This is what it says very clearly. Both the logic of the Constitution is if you're going to give specific enumerated powers, then it doesn't make sense to say, but do anything in the general welfare. And you read the Federalist Papers, and it's very clear that that just is one of the reasons. It's an introduction to why those enumerated powers are there. That said, you're absolutely right about Supreme Court precedent, but we know courts have changed their mind as time has gone on. Um, and Courts can be wrong, and then once they go wrong, yes, we have this deference to precedents, but we still, we, we know that the courts changed their mind. We know about the switch in time saves nine. Um, and so, but what we do need to do is sort of remind people why the Constitution is there, what the purpose of, and just for this debate, 
First of all, that means we need to remind people that we were on the verge of the federal government dictating standards, which ultimately has a huge impact on curriculum, what your children learn with the Common Core, and that's because we sort of shredded the constitutional protections against that sort of centralized decision-making. And then we also need to make the point to people, and this is you know, kind of the job of a place like Cato Institute, and obviously we have more work to do, uh, is that just because something is done in the name of education, in the intent of education and getting good education, doesn't mean it's actually effective at providing good education. And I think if you look at the outcomes for federal programs, there's a lot of evidence they're not effective, that they're actually counterproductive, but we need to make that argument so people understand why these things weren't in the Constitution and why they shouldn't be done at the federal level. And with that, we are out of time. Oh. But um, I appreciate everyone for coming, and thank you to the Cato Institute and Neil for um, hosting us all. There will be a lunch on the second floor. It's in the George M. Yeager Conference Center up the spiral staircase, and the restrooms are also on the second floor. So thank you. Thank you.